we're continuing our study through the Gospel of John this morning. As we continue our study through the Gospel of John today, we come face to face with a temptation that John the Baptist's disciples face. It's a temptation that's not unique to John the Baptist's disciples. It's a temptation that really everyone on the planet faces. It's a temptation that we as believers can face. And it's a temptation that we can even face while we're busy serving the Lord. And what is that temptation that John the Baptist's disciples face that you and I can face? It's a temptation of jealousy. What is jealousy? Jealousy is feeling resentment against someone. It's feeling resentment against someone because of that person's rivalry or because of their success or because of some perceived advantage they have. So it's a feeling of resentment against another person. And friends, it is so easy, even in the Lord's work, to become jealous. I mean, think for a minute. When was the last time you felt in your heart jealousy? What was it? Was it when someone else got a raise or promotion that you wanted or thought you deserved? Perhaps if you go back to the school days when someone else got a better grade in, in, the, in the test or on the project than you got and the feeling of jealousy that came up in that. How about when you were young and someone else got the girl you liked or the guy you liked and you felt that jealousy rising up in your heart? Or even, yes, we are in the South, so when the other sports team wins once again... <laughs> And you feel jealousy that your coworkers get to brag for another year while you have to sit by and realize your team is lost again. Whatever it might be, jealousy can come up in so many ways, in relationships, in jobs, in finance, in material possessions, when someone else gets that new car that you've dreamed for. But friends, jealousy can come up even in the church. What about when someone else gets picked for the role that we wanted? Or you and someone else have been serving together, but they got the attention, they got the praise for the work that was done. Or someone else becomes more popular. Friends, jealousy can come up in so many different situations. So for you, when was it? When was the last time you felt jealous? What were those situations in which jealousy came out? You know, one of the most important things we can do is trying to walk in holiness and overcome sin in our lives is to define things biblically and to make sure whatever word we use for the sins we struggle with is the word found in the Bible. And yes, the word jealousy is a word found in Scripture. It's a word that is found to describe a sinful attitude. I mean, if you think back to it, that was not our text for the morning. The very first sin, even pre-garden, when you think about Lucifer, he became jealous that God was getting worship, and he wasn't. So if you go back to Isaiah's prophecy of Isaiah 14, where he wants to rise above God, he was jealous that he was not the focus. And so he wanted that. And so you look even in that, the very first sin through which sin then came in the world was ultimately that of jealousy there. And he continues to tempt others to sin. He continues to stir up our fleshly desires. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, we're going to put it up on the screen for it. It's not our primary text for the morning, but just to get a, a reminder for us of what's at stake as we come to the text here. Galatians 5, you have this contrast between the works of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. Listen to what it says in Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions... Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jealousy is not a minor thing. If you look at the list in which it was found, it's among many dangerous sins that lead us ultimately to separation from the Lord. Jealousy is, can be described other ways. It's covetousness. It's wanting that which we do not have. It's a lack of contentment, a lack of trust. But ultimately, I want you to see, as we think about this, it's, it's significant to look at in our lives because jealousy leads to a lot more things. If you look at James chapter 3, verse 16, get one more verse before we get to our primary text for today. It says in James 3, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Friends, when we allow jealousy to take root in our hearts and lives, even if it's jealousy in the church, it's going to lead 
so many other things. It's not going to stop at jealousy. It's going to lead to so many other things. It's a temptation for us. and It's a temptation for John the Baptist's disciple. So go to John chapter 3 this morning as we continue our journey through the gospel of John. Because we're going to see here, is, and I want you to be listening, for how John the Baptist's disciples became jealous. Because you'll see jealousy arising in their hearts and their lives. But I want you to listen not just to their jealousy, but I want you to listen to what John does to correct them. Because when they come to John the Baptist with jealousy in their life, they're basically inviting him to share in their jealousy, and he rebukes them. I want you to listen in the rebuke as well for what we learn out of because in that rebuke, there's a great truth for us of the antidote to jealousy in our own hearts and lives. So look with me in John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 22 and go through verse 3. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God this morning? John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Verse 25. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. Father, I'm thankful for the gospel of John and our journey through it. And I pray as we come today to this account of John the Baptist having an opportunity to exalt you and to even correct his disciples here. Lord, I pray your word would come alive to us, that you would give us fresh eyes to see your word. And Father, if there is jealousy in any of our hearts in any way, shape, form, or fashion, I pray the word of God this morning, through the work of the Spirit of God, apply it to our hearts, might free us from this, so that we might live better for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated here. So don't you be listening as we go through this, because if we want to put, there's a principle that I use as I'm helping people try to overcome sin. If we want to put off a sin in our life, We've got to replace it with something else. We call it put off, put on. You have to put off the sin and replace it with something else. So what is it that John the Baptist uses here and encourages his disciples to use to put off jealousy? What is he going to be replacing it with? So be listening for that as we go through. Now, first of all, the setting. Let's look at what's going on here. Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Starts off after this. After what? After the account with Nicodemus. The account of being told you must be born again. The account where we've seen that unlike curiosity, true belief in Jesus is a radical rebirth, a radical transformation. After this teaching, after the teaching where we see that we can trust Jesus when he tells us why he came and why we must believe in him, why we must believe, after all this is now where John's transitioning us to to see what is happening. Jesus has now left the Jerusalem where he's been talking to Nicodemus and he's going to the countryside there. And it says he was baptizing. Now, a quick clarification on that. You go to chapter 4, verse 2. It simply says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So what is it saying here for us that Jesus was baptizing? He was overseeing his disciples baptizing. Basically, Jesus' disciples were doing the same thing John the Baptist's disciples were doing. They were Baptizing, And we believe this was still a baptism of repentance. Don't think of what we typically do with baptism. This is a baptism of repentance. If you go back into Matthew's gospel, when Jesus began his ministry, he began with the exact same message that John the Baptist had been sharing. His, Jesus' initial message was, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the very thing that John the Baptist was saying. 
And so what John the Baptist had been doing with his disciples, baptizing people for repentance, Jesus and his disciples are now doing here as well, baptizing people for repentance and preparing them for the kingdom of God. So with that in mind, Jesus' disciples are doing the same thing John the Baptist's disciples are doing, same message, same type of baptism. With that in mind, we come to verse 23. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. So you have Jesus and you have John. You have Jesus' disciples and John the Baptist's disciples, both baptizing, both calling people to repent, both proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. And John had no shortage of people following him. In fact, here where it says in verse 23, people were coming, the Greek verb here is a tense, it's a continuous action. It literally was they came and kept on coming and kept on coming and kept on coming. So the imagery here is is John the Baptist is not sitting here, you know, kind of twiddling his thumbs and Jesus over their baptism. Jesus has got a big crowd and John the Baptist has a big crowd and people are still coming to both in large numbers for this baptism of repentance. But in that setting, a theological debate arises. Look at verse 25. Now a discussion arose, I think discussion is a kind word here for it. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Well, what are they debating? What's the, what's the issue here? The word purification is the exact same word from chapter 2, verse 6. When Jesus turned water to wine, he got the stone jars that had water for purification. And so it's the exact same idea here. Purification was very important to the Jewish people. And so what is the debate probably is the discussion here is probably some type of clash between some of the Jews and their very traditional practices of purification that would involve those stone pitchers that Jesus used to turn water to wine and the baptism that was being done there in the water by John and by Jesus, his disciples, as well. So there's some debate over that. But something strange happens here because the doctrinal debate becomes really personal. In fact, the doctrinal debate fades away, and something very personal happens here. Look at verse 26. And they, the disciples, this is John the Baptist's disciples, came to John and said to him, now just stop there. I would expect them to come to him and say, you know, teacher, I'm having trouble with this. We're having this debate with these Jews, which is right, which is true. How does this fit with the law? How does all this work together? They didn't ask him. They didn't go to John the Baptist and say, hey, could you clarify for us? Did we give him the right answer here? That is not at all what I would would happen, though I would expect that to happen. Instead, they're in the middle of this debate over purification and baptism versus the ritual washings and all these type things. But instead, verse 26, they go to him and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. What happened? This theological debate became very personal and something changed here. All we can speculate is that somehow the question with this Jew they were debating, discussing, was falsing their mind and awareness that a lot of people were following Jesus instead of their master, John the Baptist. So it appears here that jealousy has begun to take root in their heart. Now, several things give us indication of that. Number one, they call John the Baptist rabbi. That's the only place in Scripture John the Baptist is ever referred to as rabbi. At this point in Jesus' ministry, yes, there's others who have been calling rabbi, but Jesus is being called rabbi as well. So they go back to their master, John the Baptist, and they use a title that's being ascribed to Jesus here that was never used to John the Baptist elsewhere. Notice as well, though, they, refer to, they refuse to refer to Jesus by name, which people do sometimes when they get mad, right? Rabbi, he who was used to you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Like, they're not even saying his name here. It's like, hey, that guy over there, you know, you know who I'm talking about? I don't want to say his name, but the one who you bore witness about. That's the one we're talking about right now. They won't even call Jesus by name. But then the one that really kind of helps us see kind of their jealousy here is also there in verse 26. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Everyone is going to him. Well, they're exaggerating. This is kind of a statement where they're pretty upset here because I've just showed you in the Greek word there that people were still continually coming to John the Baptist. But his disciples go, look, everyone is going to him now. 
They're basically finding jealousy in their heart. And we'll see that in John's response in a minute. Why are they jealous? Well, they want more people to be following who they're following, basically. It's human nature here. They're, they're worried about probably the sustainability of their own ministry with John the Baptist. And they try to drag John the Baptist into it. They're basically inviting him here to feel neglected. Look, there's more following Jesus than you. And they're inviting him to feel neglected. They're inviting him to become jealous as well. But to use our good southern expression, he does not take the bait at all on this one. He refuses to get drugged into this. And he gives them a really, really strong response. It's a rebuke. And what he shares with them are the final words of John the Baptist, at least in this gospel. Because after this account, John the Baptist will kind of fade out of the rest of the account as we go through the gospel of John. In fact, he, this is the end of what we see. If you look back in verse 24, John the Apostle tells us about John the Baptist. For John had not yet been put in prison. Sometime soon after this, John the Baptist gets arrested, put in prison, and will eventually get executed. And so these are his final words that John the Apostle records for us. And he gives us a masterful response that is something that I need to hear, that we all need to hear. And so as we look at his response, there's one main takeaway I want you to see from the text this morning related to jealousy and our desire to walk in holiness and not let jealousy take root in our own heart. And this is the main thing I want you to see in John's response. There never should be jealousy because God is sovereign and everything is about Jesus. There should never, ever be jealousy in our hearts because God is sovereign and everything in life is about Jesus. So with that in mind, let's look back at John's response again. Look back at verse 27 of the account here. John chapter 3, verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, John is not at all, John the Baptist is not at all bothered like his disciples were. He was not at all concerned that Jesus was getting more focus than he was getting. He had an unwavering contentment and joy, even though he was diminishing in Christ, was increasing. How is he able to keep that focus and not be jealous when he's fading out of the spotlight and Christ is stepping into it? And I believe his account shows us there's two truths here that enable him to do that. Number one, he believed that God is sovereign. That God is sovereign. What does that mean? What does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, it means God rules over all of his creation. That's kind of the big, broad understanding of the sovereignty of God. God rules over all of his creation. That means specifically that God has a plan. Not only does God have a plan, but what we just sang earlier, nothing is impossible for God. God is all-powerful. So God has a plan, and God has all the power to implement that plan. Therefore, God's plan, God's will, will surely happen. No one, nothing can thwart God's plan. God is on his throne, and God's plans will happen. John affirms that through what's almost like a proverb here in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He's simply stating everything that we have is because it's part of God's plan. We have it. It's because God gave it to us. God is sovereign. God chose to give it to us. And we see this throughout the rest of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 will pop up on the screen there for you. I think it's coming. There we go. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Let that sink in. What do you have that you did not receive? Friends, we have nothing apart from what God has given us. We did not choose the timing of when we'd be born. It wasn't our choice to be born for this era of redemptive history. That's God's sovereign plan. We didn't choose the gifts and the talents we would have. That's part of God's sovereign plan, the possessions we have. In fact, even the very insights we have are gifts from heaven. Look at Matthew chapter 11, 25 through 27 
as well. I want you to see this and see that even your insights and spiritual understanding is a gift from God. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. I think it's coming also. Maybe. There you go. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Friends, even our spiritual insights are gifts from God that we have received from him. And John got that. John got that everything he had came from God, including his position, including his status, including his popularity, including his influence. Everything was a gift from God. His specific ministry assignment, he realized, was by God's sovereign plan. And it wasn't his to argue with if God chose to diminish him to increase Christ being seen. Listen to verse 27 again in light of everything we have comes from God. John, so John three twenty-seven. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What is it that John had received that God had asked him to do? It was not to have a long, prosperous ministry for his whole life. It wasn't to have a long, full life. It was to have a short season to prepare the way of Christ. A short season to be a witness. A short season just to point people to someone else beside himself. And he gets that. Verse 28, he explains what he's received from heaven, what his assignment from heaven is. John three twenty-eight. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He understands what God sovereignly gave him to do, and that was to simply not be the Christ, but to point people to him. In fact, the word I hear is emphatic. He's basically shouting here in a nice way. If you look at the tenses of the words, he's basically saying, my role is not to be the Christ. Come on, guys. My role is simply to bear witness to go before. John the Baptist realized to want an assignment in life other than what God had appointed would be covetousness. Let that sink into once an assignment in life, a position in life different than what God and his good plans has given to us is covetousness. Covetousness leads to jealousy, and jealousy we saw in James 3.16 leads to many other sins. Theologian D.A. Carson says it this way. It says, For John the Baptist to have wished he was someone else, called the servant a way that many would see more prominent, would be covetousness by another name. Now get this, deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would betray not only unbelief and faithlessness, but would reveal the worst form of perennial human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God. Let that one sink in there. Deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would betray not only unbelief and faithlessness, but when we're deeply discontent over God's sovereign and wise plans, it shows an arrogance where we're wanting to be God. And that was not what was going on with John the Baptist. He trusted in the sovereignty of God. He knew that God had put him there, that God had designed his life to be there with his insights, his gifts, his life in that stage of history with that specific assignment for the sole reason of him decreasing and Christ increasing. And he was okay with that. And that that type of belief in the sovereignty of God killed jealousy. It never let jealousy take root. Of what John Calvin said, he said, the stature of us all is that we are what God wants us to be. The stature of us all is that we are what God wants us to be. But that's not all that gave John confidence to keep jealousy from taking root. We said as well that there never should be jealousy because God is sovereign. And secondly, because everything is about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. He begins with this idea with a parable. Look back at verse 29. 
He's an imagery for us, a parable that we've been talking about on Wednesday nights. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So what's he saying with this? Well, realize in Jewish culture, the friend of the bridegroom, the best analogy for us would be the best man. The job of the best man, though, the friend of the bridegroom in Jewish culture, was multifaceted. He organized the wedding. That was part of his responsibility. He presided over the wedding. He took the bride to the groom's chamber. And though we can't find this in our culture, he would stand outside the um, chamber and wait till the marriage was consummated. And when he realized the marriage was consummated, he would go back and announce it to all the people at the wedding feast so they could celebrate that what they had seen and the vows and all that had actually been done. And so that was his job. Now... With that said, once that announcement had been made to the people waiting to celebrate, his job was over. The job of the friend of the bridegroom was not to be the prominent person. He was simply the one to organize, to prepare people to announce. And everyone's focus was on the bride and the groom, not on the best man. What best man is out there being like, man, I want to be the focus. No, the best man is rejoicing in the joy of his friend. He's rejoicing in the joy of the bride and the groom and focusing the crowd on the bride and the groom. And that's an image for us of what John understood about his life and about all of our lives. Friends, our purpose in life is not to draw attention to self. Our purpose in life is to point our lives and everyone else's focus around us to someone else, and that is to Christ, not to us. And in case we've missed that imagery of the parable here in that one verse of verse 29, in verse 30, John states it in really simple, plain words for us. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. There's the word must. He must. It's a divine necessity that Christ be exalted and that we be minimized. It is God's plan not to make much of us, but to make much of Christ. Everything in the whole universe is about God's glory. Everything is by God's design to point us to Jesus, and that is good. Therefore, it's never the place of the servant to displace the master. And John knew that. It was not his place for John the Baptist to be the focus. It was his job to point people to the focus, which is in Jesus. And friends, it's never our place to make ourselves the focus. It's our place to take the focus and point others to Jesus as well. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 115, verse 1. He simply said, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Let that one sink in. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. It's all about Jesus. Friends, there never should be jealousy because God is sovereign and because everything in life should point to Jesus. So we have to put off jealousy. How do we put off jealousy? How do we get rid of jealousy in our lives? By believing in God's plan. By believing there's no accident. God has us where we are with the possessions we have, the gifts we have, the talents we have, with the people around us, all that stuff by His design because He wants to use us there. Not for self, but to point those around us in that position to Jesus. So we put off jealousy that way. But notice, like I said earlier, when we put off something, we have to replace it with something else. We put off the jealousy, but what do we put on in its place? Look at verse 29. We'll see what we put on here. So again, you have the parable. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Friends, if we want to put off jealousy, what do we replace it with? Replace it with joy. Because joy is going to be the antithesis of jealousy. Joy, contentment, delight in what God has given us and the position he's given us and the people around us he's given us and whatever influence he's given us, we're rejoicing in that. We're rejoicing and that's what John is doing here. John the Baptist is rejoicing at seeing people look to Christ instead of himself. He's rejoicing that he has a role that's diminishing in God's sovereign plan. He's rejoicing at the fact that he has done what God has called him to 
to do. He's rejoicing at God's sovereign will and the supremacy that gives to Jesus. So that leads us to think about how this applies to us. Because if we said throughout the Gospel of John, it bears questions for us. John doesn't give us information, so we'd be like, well, that's cool, and move on with our lives and close the Bible and move on. John wrote this Gospel that we might believe and that we might have life abundantly in Christ. We might have eternal life. We might know him now. So what does this mean for us? Well, it's an example for us for one level. We see that we should not have jealousy because God is sovereign and everything is about Jesus. But it also leads us to ask some hard questions. Think back to the question I asked at the beginning. When have you in life been most jealous? What are those situations in which you find jealousy coming up in your heart? Friends, and it's sobering to realize this, we cannot really have jealousy in our heart while we affirm the sovereignty of God. We may say we believe that God is on his throne and in control and nothing is impossible, we're just saying. But if we're finding jealousy in our hearts, we can't sing what we just sang right before the sermon with all integrity. Because if we have jealousy, we're discontent in God's provision for us. So if we see jealousy taking root, what do we do? We need to memorize and meditate some of the things we looked at here. John three twenty seven that we've looked at several times this morning. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Friends, when we have jealousy in our hearts, we need to go back and memorize and meditate on that. We need to go back to what we looked at in James three sixteen about all the things that come from jealousy. If you're in a place right now where you don't see any jealousy in your heart, look harder. In all seriousness, if you really are in a place to where, where the Lord has given you freedom and victory in that, we need to remember that what we just read in verse 27, everything we have has been given to us. Friends, if you're finding victory over this or any other sin, it's not because you're such a great person. It's not because I'm a great person. It's because God in His grace has given us a victory in this. And so when you're finding victory over jealousy or whatever the sin is, use that to realize this is not because of me. This is because of the Spirit of God at work in me. And lead it to turn to praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for His kindness to you in it. Now, the other question I believe this text bears of us is to ask, what are we living for? Because John the Baptist, we saw in one of our early sermons in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist lived to exalt Christ. We see that here as well, that John the Baptist lives to exalt Christ. We better understand how he does so, because he believes that God is on his throne. But we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we living for? Are we living to exalt Christ or to exalt self? Friends, if we took a tape recording of all my conversations from the last week, or all of your conversations from the last week, did most of our conversations point people to Jesus or point people to us? That can be a sobering question. Think about, are our lives reflective of a life that wants to make much of Christ and not make much of self? If we see that we're not where we need to be, again, go back to some of the stuff we just talked about. Go memorize and meditate on Psalm 115. One, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. To go back and to dwell on what Christ has done for us and what he's called us to do. But if we are in a place to where, in God's grace, we're making much of Christ then don't sit on it. Help others along the way because we all need help in this journey together. So I want to leave you with those questions this morning. Is your life making much of Christ? And how are you doing in terms of jealousy? Are you content with God's provision for you? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that stretches us, that challenges us, that convicts us, that encourages us, often all at the same time. Lord, I pray for each one of us in the Gateway family, Lord. Lord, you know what's going on in our hearts and our lives. You know how clever the enemy is to want to trip us up and to scheme to get us far from you. And, or to realize even in ministry, I think at times in my life when jealousy has taken hold in my own heart and how deceptive it is and how we get there without even realizing it sometimes. 
Now, would you give grace to me, grace to these sweet brothers and sisters this week? If there are places of jealousy taking root in our heart that perhaps we don't even see right now, would you give us grace to show us that this week? They might be quick to repent. They might be quick to uproot this from our life, to come back to a place of recognizing that our lives are not about us, but about you. Come back to a place of realizing that you're on your throne, you're sovereign, and you're good in what you've given to us. Or would you let us be a people who find joy in you? Would you let us be a people individually and collectively here in the church family that makes much of you? Lord, our passion, our prayer as a people would not be to make a name for Gateway, would not be to make a name for ourselves or our families, but Lord, we need to make a name for you. And Lord, would you give us grace for that? Because God, we are in, unable on our own to do that. It takes your grace, your Holy Spirit working in us to bring us to a place where we can really say with all integrity and sincerity and with joy, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We ask you would do that for your glory and namesake. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us as we sing our closing song?